Uh, quite beautiful, quite extraordinary. So, are you starting? Oh, okay. So, to continue with the theme of this retreat, and basically our orientation in general, teaching Dharma practice is truly your life, what you're encountering in your life as it's unfolding, whatever situation you're in. You know, right now we're in a retreat environment. Of course, that retreat environment is continually changing. You can feel it in the hall, for instance. It feels very different now than it did four or five days ago, for sure. Definitely kind of energy. But also conditions in your life. That's where we're practicing most of the time, in our daily life outside of retreat centers, off the cushion. So what I'd like to do tonight is talk about a very powerful force in our life um, that doesn't just arise in our formal practice, uh, but also it's a powerful force in our life um, as we're living it out there. And that is to begin to include in one's practice, if your life is your practice, that means the practice is all-inclusive, all parts of ourselves are included in the practice, the things we like, the things that we don't like about ourselves, the things that are painful and the things that are pleasant. So include the very uh, powerful force of uh, the energy of fear. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight and maybe suggest certain ways that we can approach this energy uh, to begin to become more conscious and aware of it and then also how to enter into a more skillful or compassionate relationship to it. So, you know, most of us, uh, by the time we've arrived at a meditation center, have a certain level of self-awareness. I don't think we'd be here if we didn't. And for most of us, of course, we know that we've, over the course of our lifetime, we've accumulated a lot of fears and anxiety and worry and lots of self-doubt. You know, self-doubt is a epidemic in this particular culture that we're living in. I've given entire talks on, on working with self-doubt uh, because I encounter it so often uh, in working with practitioners. And um, it's clearly a conditioned state that arises under the kind of life that we're leading, the choices that we make. So, The uh, task or the challenge uh, for meditators is to begin to uh, encounter oneself, develop the capacity to take a look, to be with yourself, to live with yourself, and to begin to examine and look at how we're relating to ourselves, how we're relating to the experiences that we're encountering, both within the body and the mind and the environment, in our relationships themselves. And in Vipassana, that's a lot of the work. A lot of the work is that orientation towards taking a look at yourself so that when we find ourselves in a situation, a particular predicament, a particular set of conditions, uh, not only are we focusing on what might be discerning in terms of how to deal with those conditions or how to respond, but we're looking also at what we're doing in relationship to it. And to me, that's one of the strengths of Vipassana, insight meditation as a practice, um, because what it does is it gently trains the mind to to be self-aware, 
to be what we're, to see, to begin to examine what we're doing, how we're acting, how we're behaving, how we're reacting, the things that we encounter, so that we bring more awareness to that relationship. And as we bring more awareness to the relationship, you know, something begins to change. You know, that relationship itself begins to change. We become more aware of it. We begin to take a look at it. We begin to identify less with that particular relationship because it becomes an object of awareness. It becomes something to take a look at rather than just habitually react. So looking at our relationship to fear, we'll take a closer look at that energy of fear in a little while in this talk, but basically let's just start with uh, kind of what I I have like three categories um, of relationships to fear that we tend to, um, that we've learned basically. We we learn, our minds are conditioned. We learn to respond, to relate to certain situations, certain uh, relationships, certain uh, conditions. And we learn that, and then we just take what we learned from the past and into the present. And of course, that's, that's what fear is. It's taking the past and bringing it into the present moment. But these three categories of relationships, one is, uh, it falls under the category of what I would call delusion, um, which is fears that are unconscious. You know, like we don't really know we're experiencing fear. We don't really know we're feeling anxious or worried or we're getting caught up in self-doubt. That would be delusion, like there's a disconnect from what our experience is, this lack of awareness. Um, we don't recognize it when, we're ha- when it's happening. Okay. So we're experiencing it, we might be getting caught up in it, but we don't actually recognize that, yeah, there's this energy, this state of mind that's arising. Um, and uh, so we don't see it. It's unseen in the sense. And also another form of delusion, I think, is denial. It's kind of telling yourself a story about not being afraid when you are. So that I would call delusion. Another category, another way of relating to fear, a very common one is, of course, aversion. Aversion. And certainly when we, most of us, when we recognize fear or we experience it, one of the first things maybe that we see, hopefully we see this, that it's a very unpleasant experience. It's not particularly pleasant. Um, It's a contracted state. Okay, we contract around it. So when we're feeling fearful, the mind reacts by contracting, moving into kind of a defensive mode, uh, both physically and emotionally. Uh, Another form of aversion is we try to manage it. And we manage it by avoiding certain situations. Say more about that later. We push it away when we're feeling it because we're feeling overwhelmed by it. So we push it away or we push it down. You know, kind of that classic psychological thing of repressing it. Uh, We also, another form of aversion is that we judge our anxiety. When we're feeling anxious or we're feeling afraid and we have some awareness of it, there can be a lot of, uh, of course, self-criticism and self-judgment, which is a relationship. It's it's an aversive relationship to a particular experience. Uh, So that's uh, another um, category. And we also, we're also afraid of our fears. We're afraid, we're afraid that we're going to be overwhelmed by them. So fear can trigger more fear, another form of aversion. Finally, there's identification, you know, which is when we're experiencing anxiety or worry, self-doubt, or any kind of fear. I'm putting all of these in the same basic category of fear. Um, there's a strong tendency to claim it as, as me or mine, 
a very deep, deeply conditioned uh, relationship uh, that starts very early, where we have that particular experience in this I am experiencing fear. So it's actually not I am experiencing fear, it's I am fear, really, when we look at it at a very primal level. So there's this claiming. And oftentimes that claiming, then out of that claiming, we form another kind of relationship, which is shame. We can have a lot of shame around these experiences. And in shame, there is aversion, of course, uh, but also there's an identification. You know, we're constructing a self, and we feel bad about that self on a very deep level. So the problems with these relationships is they perpetuate suffering. You know, they don't facilitate healing. So we have to begin to work with those relationships. Remember that in insight practice, we're not striving for some ideal like fearlessness. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. We're not striving for some ideal of uh, fearlessness. We're, We're really much more interested in the actuality of our experience. That's what the Buddha taught. He said that in understanding the actuality of our experience, rather than striving for some ideal, that's where we get liberation comes through understanding the actuality of our experience. And so with delusion, if we're not in touch with, if we're going around in an unconscious way, if, we're, if it's unseen, and sometimes maybe we wish it wasn't. You know, when we start waking up, you know, it's, oftentimes we talk, we joke around the fact that in the process of waking up, it's often bad news. Uh, it's not necessarily what you want to wake up to. Uh, you want to wake up to be enlightened. Um, but for a lot of us, we wake up to something quite different than that. Uh, we wake up to just how unconscious we are and how powerful these habits of mind are. And sometimes, you know, when we wake up to that fact, it can be very discouraging. And so we emphasize wise effort, that perseverance piece, because you kind of have to go through that phase of kind of seeing, really, the state of things. Uh, and for most of us, almost every human being I've ever encountered, talk to them about practice. When we start waking up, we see conflict. You know, we see dissatisfaction, discontent. We see the mind in turmoil, fighting itself. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily always happening, but take a look at your mind as we've been doing. And there's a lot of those moments, an awful lot of those moments. So when we're unconscious, unfortunately what happens is that we continue to practice that habit. That's the suffering in it. In other words, as long as it's unseen, we continue to do it. As long as we continue to do it, it gets stronger. And as it gets stronger, the more and more we identify with it. So the practice, of course, is to begin to bring the light of awareness into that relationship, to begin to see it, to recognize it, to to learn to acknowledge it when it's arising, to get in touch with what our actual experience is. And of course, that's the power of mindfulness. It allows us to see what our actual experience real experience is in this particular moment in time, in the present moment. And so it creates the conditions for the energy of fear to begin to surface. And we begin to see, everyone reports this, when we begin to practice Vipassana, we begin to notice more frequently what's happening and how much it changes. Aversion, looking at that relationship, it's powerful very powerful relationship to fear that we've, uh, that we've cultivated, uh, that we've been taught. I know as a, uh, as a young boy, I grew, grew up with 
I had a younger sister that came along later, but mostly I grew up with um, three uh, brothers. And, you know, to say it was chaotic would be an under, understatement. Um, but also, you, know, you get educated in a certain way through a lot of different streams. And, and my education told me that I wasn't supposed to be afraid since I was, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what girls are taught, but boys are definitely taught. Um, you, you, being afraid is, is, you know, there's a lot of terms for it. I won't bring them up, but you're not supposed to be afraid. Uh, and so if you are, you hide it. You know, you hide it. So like, for instance, I was, a hi- I was afraid of the dark when I was a kid. And I shared a room with my brother. And we would fight over how far the door would be open uh, at night before we went to bed because there was some light coming in. Uh, so, you know, I usually lost, but then I'd stay awake and open the door later when he was asleep. Uh, it was my technique. Uh, but, you know, I would never really, I wouldn't admit to him, maybe the last person I'd admit to, that I was afraid of the dark. I just wanted the door open. You know, I mean, why would I want the door open other than that? But, uh, you know, I would never acknowledge it to him for sure because, of course, I was ashamed of it. You know, I didn't tell my parents that I was afraid of the dark or anything. They probably knew. Um, I mean, I don't know how they couldn't, but uh, there was no way I was going to acknowledge that. And so we can see this, these impressions developing so early, you know, so early in our life. Uh, that, uh, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, aversion. And of course, what happens with aversion is that we judge it. We judge our fears and anxieties and worries. It, you know, it, I don't want to say it's foolish because it's universal, but it is foolish and it is universal to actually judge an unpleasant experience that you're having that you're not even in control of. I mean, it's like really piling on to something, you know, it's completely unnecessary, but we do it. Anyway, um, so aversion, what we do is we judge it. Of course, we avoid um, conditions, you know, that bring it up. I guess I should share this story. I'm embarrassed by this story. Uh, I went to college in my quite old, actually. I mean, like my 30s. I was yogi for many, many years, and then I decided I had to get my act together and make a little bit of money. Uh, So I decided I needed a college education, um, which was a really good decision. It led me to Dharma teaching. (laughs) Uh, I didn't really make a living through the college, but I learned a lot of important things. But when I got to, to school, this was, you know, like 10 years into practice, I was terrified of speaking in public. Terrified, absolutely. I, I spent my entire life avoiding that kind of situation of talking in any kind of group. I'd always be the quiet one, of course. So I remember one time in my English class, I think it was a Shakespeare class, or so, I, I ended up starting in a community college, getting a scholarship to this prestigious university where everybody was like super smart and super hyper competitive. And um, I was a lot older than them, of course, so I didn't fit in. Um, but I was in this English class, and um, we used to write these papers in this, this school, all the, like 20 or 25 pages long. Um, it's actually the last time I did any writing was in this school. I totally burnt out uh, because, you know, I wrote hundreds of pages about stuff I really didn't care that much about. Um, so I was in this class where the teacher offered us this choice which was to pair up with somebody in class. It was a small class. It was only like 20. It was one of those, uh, you know, what do you call, I don't know what they call them, but they're like small and you know, whatever, ju- junior in college. 
So um, we could pair up with somebody and just sit in the desk, in front of a desk, and just talk about some play that we had read, some Shakespeare play that we had read. Or, as an alternative, we could write another 20-page paper. <laughs> what do you think I chose? <laughs> Damn right, I chose the paper. Uh, just avoid you know, what was really a very low-key, relatively safe environment. And still, I backed off. And of course, that's, that's a version. You know, we, we, we do that over and over again. We avoid situations that, that um, expose us or, or that um, make us feel uncomfortable. We don't want to experience that pain, whatever that pain feels like. The third is um, identification. And this is powerful because practice really works at this level. Actually, it starts working on this level from the very first moment we begin to practice mindfulness. You know, each moment of mindfulness is a, is a moment of non-identification with one's experience. Okay. Just is very deep, the identification process. But the moment that we shine a light of mindfulness or awareness on a particular experience, there's a process of, of not taking it as who you are, of not defining yourself by it. Because now it's something to be observed, something to, be, something to learn from. It's not outside of ourselves, but there's more space in that moment in time. And there's less identification, there's less claiming it as me or mine. If we don't bring light of awareness into our relationship with fear, the aversions, the delusion, the confusion, the identification with it, um, what happens is the fear becomes very solid. You know, we absorb it, we take it on. Um, we, uh, you know, one very strong form of, I think, um, identification is that feeling of self-consciousness. Um, you know, feeling self-conscious, you know, that sense of self, that sense of separation, uh, which is very powerful when we get caught in fear. We feel very separate, alone, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but that's strong tendency of the thinking, the story that's associated with fear is that it's happening to me. I'm separate from other people. It's a source of tremendous amount of suffering. Um, and so beginning to not identify with it so much is so crucial. Uh, because if we don't, uh, if we get caught in these kind of habitual relationships, whether they're de- unconscious or aversion or identifying with them, it, it, be- it becomes very uh, challenging to begin to explore the energy of fear. And it's worthy of our exploration. It's a tremendous source of suffering. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Fear can arise and it doesn't necessarily have to trigger an enormous amount of suffering. Anxiety can arise and it doesn't have to trigger an enormous amount of suffering. The worry mind can arise and it doesn't have to trigger so much suffering. Self-doubt can arise. It doesn't have to torment us. We don't have to get caught by it. We don't have to get pulled into it. It doesn't have to condition the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, the way we approach life. It doesn't have to limit us. So a lot of the work with fear, what I would say, is working on our relationship to it. Okay? Shining our light, the light of awareness, on our relationship to it. If we want to understand the nature of fear, we have to understand our relationship to it. And we have to transform that relationship. Okay? We need to transform that relationship. We need to move out of that space of delusion 
we need to begin to re- respond to it without so much aversion. You know, we need to learn to identify so, not so much with it. And that's what we're doing here in our practice, not just with fear, but with all experiences, with all forms of suffering. Doing that, we're facilitating that same process. And so taking up the work with fear, you know, beginning to include it in one's practice. First of all, I would say that what's crucial is um, something that we've been talking a great deal about on this retreat, because we all know how important it is, which is our attitude. You know, our attitude towards these energies, uh, these states of mind, these reactions, you know, the conditions of the mind. Trying to relate to these with a more open heart, of course. You know, that investigative question, can I make room for this particular experience? It's crucial. It's crucial. That creates the conditions you know, to begin to explore fear and to begin to relate to it in a very fundamentally different way, in a way where we can actually learn from that energy and not be tormented by it. So shifting our attitude, working with our attitude, cultivating that capacity to be more allowing, more compassionate, putting some effort into it, reminding ourselves, you know, that, okay, can I be with this experience? Is, is it okay for me to have this worry or anxiety or fear? Just asking that, that question, not posing it on you. You can't force yourself to be allowing, but it's an important question to ask. Because my guess is if we continue to ask it, you know, with the right spirit, it'll start, that attitude will start changing. It opens up that possibility of the attitude changing. And of course, mindfulness, as I mentioned, is, is crucial. Brings, it, there's a shift in Dharma practice with mindfulness from going from the unconscious to the conscious. There's a shift from going from relating to ourselves and the experiences that we have with all sorts of preconceptions. Uh, something that we do all the time is have all these ideas about who we are and what our experience is. Uh, we have all sorts of ideas about, ideas about the fears and anxieties and worries that we have. One of the preconceptions is, that's who I am. I'm an anxious person. Uh, there's no such thing as an anxious person. Okay, get to that in a minute. Mindfulness allows us to begin to shift from a mode of thinking. You know, I mentioned that the other night, trying to think your way out, figuring out, analyzing it, tracing back the source of your fears. It's not to say that that's a waste of time, but there's another approach that's worthy of... of um, putting some effort into, which is just silent observation. You know, just silent observation, just, just observing the nature of it, how, how it's expressing itself. Now, that's not that easy to do. I'm going to get to a variety of suggestions that will help facilitate that process, at least that, that, that have in my life anyway. Um, but there's that major shift from, from figuring out and strategizing and self-criticism and self-improvement programs and all sorts of things like that in order to not have that experience. And what I want to say is that, that a lot of that stuff is coming from a very aversive place, you know, from a very identified place. You know, we're trying to fix ourselves. 
Don't try to fix yourself. Don't try to fix yourself. Work at understanding yourself, but don't fix it. So mindfulness is a very powerful force. It allows us to begin to relate to our body-mind process, the environment that we're in, in a fundamentally different way. And it also facilitates a, a powerful force of healing. Because Dharma practice, there is healing in Dharma practice. As one awakens from all these habits that torment us, that torture us, that um, create so much suffering for us, there's a powerful force of healing that occurs, whether we know it or not. So often the healing is happening at an unconscious level, at a much deeper level than what we're noticing or that we're seeing. I'm sure of that. There's a quote by Rilke, Rilke. And to me this talks a lot about the power of awareness in terms of facilitating that healing. Rilke. What is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. In the difficult are the friendly forces the hands that work on us. Sure, the hands that work on us. In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. So much of the work, so much of the healing is when difficulties arise and we understand that, oh yeah, this is a painful experience. Is there a way of relating to this in a very different way? And learning a new way of relating to that difficulty is where the healing occurs. So often what we, our concept is, let's not have the difficulties. That's not a particularly useful approach. All that does is push it away or bury it. So there's a strong tendency to take our fears personally in a big, big way. I mean, every interview I ever have, When people know that I talk about fear around CIMC or whatever, they come in. It's like the, that's the whole thing. Is like my fears. Uh, you know, how how can I work with my fear? That's usually the question, and I usually kind of respond in a kind of challenging way, pointing out that it's not their fear. Um, so, what I'm going to do is just very go go very briefly through a list uh, of fears. Um, that are very common, I think. Uh, and this isn't a list to depress you. Um, that's not the intention. It's not to kind of bury you under the message of dukkha. Um, but more or less, it's, it's to point to the fact that the things that we take personally are, are incredibly common. Uh, so there's the fear, obviously, the big ones of aging, sickness, and death. Uh, there's, so as I'm going through, just take a look at your own mind and see if at least one of them uh, relates to your life. Aging, sickness, and death. Uh, fear of the unknown. Fear of change. Fear of transition. Fear of losing control. Fears of being alone. Fears of being vulnerable. And a lot of these fears that I'm listing are social fears. You know, the fears like aging, sickness, and death. You know, those are very primal fears. But these other kinds of fears that I'm going through are, are fears that are ari- arising in daily life, in our relationships, as we move about this planet, as we encounter folks, as we, when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, fears of being alone, fears of being vulnerable, fears of being hurt. There's fears of conflict. It's a big one. 
of fear of being blamed or criticized, rejected. Fear of being seen, self-consciousness. Then there's self-doubt, huge. Fear of failure, of being overwhelmed, fear of being less than, the fear of uh, disappointing others, even the fear of success, which is a particularly twisted fear, I'd say. But I have a little story about the fear of success, and this, and this was something I, I recognized myself uh, in the fourth grade, believe it or not. We used to have gym. And um, I, I, you know, I can, this, this, this particular lesson was so, I mean, it was so, in a sense, traumatic um, that I still see it. I mean, I can still experience exactly what that feeling felt like. But we had Jim, and, and, and you might not know it by how big I am now, but I was actually the smallest, um, <laughs> literally the smallest kid, boy or girl in my class until about the 11th grade. And then I just graduated to being the smallest boy until my senior year, until I graduated. And then I grew quite a few inches, actually, when I left high school. And of course, I thought that said something about high school. Um, (laughs) So I was very small and, uh, you know, played sports and stuff, but I was pretty small. It wasn't that strong. But they used to have these like contests. I don't know why just to torment us, I guess, a contest in gym. Uh, and they had this push-up contest to see how many push-ups you could do. And for some reason, I've always been able to do push-ups. can't do pull-ups, but I can do push-ups. So I remember this contest. Every boy went through their thing. And I was probably one of the last of the last. And, the, and this big guy, I don't know how big he was, but he was big to me, uh, did these push-ups. And he, this is really literally a true story. He did 27 push-ups. Okay? And so I followed him. And I started doing my push-ups. And you know, I was going on. And I could feel some pressure building as I was going. As I was approaching 27, I felt all this pressure. I literally stopped at 27 because I didn't want to win. I didn't want to get to 28. You know, I, I didn't want to succeed. And of course, there was all this, this fear associated with that. I still can remember that. And, and so, the, so, of course, why I can remember it was because there was so much shame about that. I recognized what I did. You know, I felt like I kind of copped out. And thus, I remember the exact amount of push-ups from, <laughs> from about a zillion years ago. So we can even be afraid of success. You know, I've talked to people about that, actually, because it puts you out there. You know, it signifies something that could be frightening. So it's not just fear of failure. It's amazing, actually, what the mind can be afraid of. Anything, actually. Uh, and fears are so subjective. When you start taking a look at it, uh, you know, some people just thrive in giving talks and speeches and all of that. And other people, you know, it's their worst fear. There have been studies. Some people just are terrified. Many, many people are terrified of speaking in public. So it's very subjective. 
So meditation is about a process of awakening, of waking up to the here and now of our experience, which of course is a huge shift in how we're living our lives rather than being you know, lost in the past or obsessed with the future. We're beginning to relate to the present moment. We're learning to do that through the mindfulness practice because of course so much of our thinking is uh, caught and mired in the past and, and constantly speculating and planning and worrying about the future. So mindfulness creates that refuge of, of beginning to rest the attention in the present moment. Um, So in taking up the work with fear, what we want to do is become mindful of it, begin to recognize it and acknowledge that energy when it arises. That's the mindfulness piece. But then also there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just being mindful that one is afraid, one is anxious. Um, You know, we, we need to enter into a wise and compassionate relationship, which doesn't necessarily come out of mindfulness. You know, requires a you know requires more effort, really, effort to cultivate other qualities besides mindfulness that will support mindfulness, that will support this examination or this exploration or this discovery, uh, this path of awareness, um, and certainly one of the key um, aspects of insight meditation practice, something we develop uh, along the way, uh, is of course the development of calm. And to me, that's extremely empowering. It was very empowering for me when I started doing calming practices in insight meditation and, and realized that I could actually calm my mind, that the, the mind could actually get quieter, experience a certain degree of contentment and calm. And so when we talk about practicing, in our life. We want to begin to bring in the kinds of qualities that we're developing here and actually find ways to make them accessible when we're outside of these conditions, where there aren't the reminders, where, we're, where we find ourselves in provocative conditions, everyday life conditions. Can we call on our practice uh, to not only become more mindful or aware that we're feeling anxiety or worry, but also how to move into a more skillful relationship so that we can, so that we're not um, victimized by it, so that we're not overwhelmed by it, so that we're not ruled by it, so that we're not subjected to it. And so one, so I've sort of explored this energy of fear quite a bit in my practice. I've done a lot of teaching on it for the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, was a, it has been a powerful force in my life. And at some point in my practice, I realized I needed to take it up in a more full way. So I began to experiment and work with different practices that were offered to me. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to spend the rest of the evening talking about, which is some of the practices that I found particularly useful uh, for both calming and investigating or inquiry in working with the energy of fear. And they're, and they're practices that we actually do here on retreat. But these practices that I'm offering, I feel, are practices that you can do in the subway, driving, you know, anywhere you are. They're not that difficult. They're actually really simple, basic practices. And of course, learning to, remembering to do them or, or trying, taking them up to see if they're useful is crucial. Um, putting a little bit of effort into working with these practices, I want to suggest. So these are calming practices that I have found to be remarkably helpful 
remarkably helpful in freeing the mind, in letting go of fear, working with fear. One is the touch points. You know, it, that's an invaluable practice, the touch points, in terms of working in daily life. It's one of the easiest practices to do. To me, it's one of the easiest mindfulness practices to, to do. When I teach beginners, I do a lot of that. Their first day they arrive and they come, and many of them actually have never meditated. And I, all, I ask them all, can you feel the cushion of the chair that you're sitting on? And I think, of course, of a zillion, you know, a lot of years of teaching, I had one person tell me they couldn't feel any sensations at all from that contact. And they'd never practiced, a lot of these folks had never practiced mindfulness. In that moment, of course, when they can experience the sitting bones touching, that's a moment of mindfulness. So this practice is not an advanced, you know, difficult practice. It's not like all these things you have to remember to do in order to be mindful or any of that. All we have to do is remember to become aware of touch points. It could be if we're walking down the street, for instance, and we were feeling worried about something or preoccupied or anxious or agitated. Uh, maybe we're heading to work or to just feeling stressed out in general. Just to feel the bottoms of your feet touching the sidewalk, the pavement. Literally just feeling those sensations, even for a few seconds, maybe a little bit longer if you can. Tremendously useful. Tremendously useful. When I tell people this, sometimes they look at me really puzzled, like, that. Ah, it's like way too simple. Couldn't be useful. Got to do something, mantra, whatever, in order to get there. No, no, this is unbelievably helpful. This is a practice you can do for the rest of your life. And one of the, po- the power of this practice is that, one, is those sensations are very accessible, which means the present moment is accessible. Because when we're stressed out, or when we're afraid, or when we're worried, we're out of the present moment. We're caught. It's extremely empowering to make yourself, make your way back to the here and now, to the present moment. Because then we can begin to see that it's a state of mind. Otherwise, we're caught in that state of mind. Coming back to the present moment brings us back to the conditions that we're, that we're here. We're walking, we're touching. You know, present moment experience. Another, another advantage or another uh, strength of working with the touch points is uh, it's grounding, it's anchoring. You know, it's, an- it's settling, it's a calming practice. So it brings us into the present moment, helps settle the mind down. And one can do it anywhere. So that's one of the common practices. Another practice that I love to do, this is a very enjoyable practice. Done it for a number of years now. And it's very helpful for calming the mind when we're feeling anxious or worried, uh, stressed out or fearful, or caught up in self-doubt, is to relax the eyes. To relax the eyes or and, or and, the hands. Those are incredible practices to do. The eyes, you know, just, so just to soften the eyes, just to consciously soften the muscles around the eyes, is very calming. It allows us, it creates space in the mind. It creates space in the mind. Because oftentimes when we are experiencing that fear, anxiety, you know, we're holding it in the eyes. So just softening the eyes kind of just shifts 
A lot of times when we're caught in fear, it leads to a sense of disconnection. Softening the eyes, relaxing the hands, what it does is it, it, it um, creates the conditions for relaxing and connecting, uh, moving into a more receptive, open space. So that's another useful common practice. Sometimes I've noticed this uh, at different times, working with sound. When the mind is particularly tight, probably mentioned that already on this group, in, on this retreat, but um, working with sound is very helpful for nurturing calm. A lot of times when, when one's caught in anxiety, worries, or fears, the mind is, of course, very contracted and very tight. The world gets very small. Um, and so opening to the environment, say more about that tomorrow, but you working with the environment, awareness practice, uh, like going outdoors and just listening to the sound of the breeze or the birds, or when you're in the hall, just listening to sound. Um, expands the mind, expands beyond the sort of mind-body turmoil that we find ourselves in. So sound is a very common practice. And finally, of course, the practice that Narayan has been teaching, which is the metta practice, which is the classic antidote, one of the classic antidotes, anyways, to working with fear. And again, um, I hope I'm right here. Uh, I'm not a metta expert, uh, but I do practice it a little bit. safely can say that it's not about getting rid of your fear. It's not about a strategy of, of you know, crushing your fear or getting rid of it uh, based on aversion to it. No, it's much more about bringing the mind more into balance, you know, cultivating a more expansive, loving quality in the mind. Because, of course, fear is kind of the opposite, right? It's very contracted, very tight, very um, uh, disempowered. You know, the quality of love is very empowering. It's embracing. It's unconditioned. Fear is very deeply, deeply conditioned. And so metta allows us, helps create the space in the mind to be with the actuality of our experience. Where a lot of times our self-judgments, our reactions get in the way of doing that. So metta, in the way I, I've often worked with it predominantly, is I just have one phrase. And I use it in my daily life at different times during the day. And my phrase, the phrase I choose, um, is may I be at ease. Okay? And the reason I chose that phrase is because I resonate with it. I can actually do it and really get behind it. It's very accessible to me. Uh, and sometimes when I do it, what I'll do is I'll just kind of uh, allow the energy, allow my attention to rest in my chest area. And like I could be walking down the street feeling anxious about something, a meeting that's coming up, and I'll just, may I be at ease? May I be at ease? Again, you know, not with the intention to get rid of, the experience, but just to introduce, you know, another wholesome quality of mind that will help balance that contracted state. So those are all common practices that one can do, not only on the cushion, but in everyday life. Yikes. Okay, um, calming practices. Moving into more of an investigative practice. In working with fear, oftentimes it's it's it's, u- it's more useful to go into a calming practice first, particularly if the mind is out of balance. Because when we talk about investigation or inquiry, it requires a certain degree of calm, often. It's, not, it's possible to inquire, but when the mind is feeling reactive and overwhelmed or disempowered, paying attention in a silent, open-hearted way is not necessarily that easy. Okay? Developing a little bit of calm and stability of attention, you know, where we can pay attention for more than just a second, um, 
that allows us to begin to take a look more directly at the nature of the fear itself. Take a look at it. So, after recognizing it, acknowledging it, you know, kind of assessing whether we need to do a little bit of calming practice, then it's possible, let's just say, to begin to observe the characteristics of these energies of worry, anxiety, fear, self-doubt. One important area, I'll just go through this very quickly, is the process of self-knowing, this investigative process, beginning to recognize what conditions, getting to know oneself, in other words, getting to know what conditions give rise to fear. You know, as I said, it's very subjective. Some people thrive in certain conditions and don't experience fear, and other people are, are completely terrified of those experiences. And then other people have tremendous confidence in this area, opposite. Okay? So it's very subjective. It's important to get to know yourself. You know, and with that attitude of loving kindness, allowing, can I make room for the experience that facilitates the getting to know oneself, developing intimacy. So that's a, that's a very crucial aspect of investigation, getting to seeing the condition, the conditionality of these energies arising. What conditions do they arise? And then beginning to observe how fear expresses itself, both in the body and mind. One of the more powerful, I think, investigative practices, not always possible if there's not enough calm, but one of the very helpful and useful investigative practices with, with working with fear is observing the sensations in the body. This was an extremely helpful practice for me to take up. Uh, someone in Thailand taught it to me, a monk, um, and I took it up, and it has been tremendously liberating to begin to uh, see into the energy nature of fear. See, fear is an energy. It's a form of energy. There aren't many people that would just totally disagree with that because everything's energy, right? Body, mind, all of it's energy. But to actually see it as energy up close and to be really convinced that it's energy, one way to do that is to observe it in the body. And again, this is a process of letting go of the identification with it. That's what happened for me. As I began to see that, yeah, this fear is an energy, it expresses itself in the body, and the quality of that energy is really unpleasant. That was really helpful, actually, for me to acknowledge and recognize that, yeah, this is painful. And because it's painful, I have aversion to it. I don't like it. That's the Buddha's teaching. Pain, we don't like it. Aversion. But to see that process in a less personal way, because what we're doing, what we often do, is identify with the thoughts, the story associated with the fears. But actually seeing it on a sensation, physical sensation level, extremely helpful. It's a very useful investigative process. So if one is feeling anxiety, worry, or fear, try to drop into, like acknowledge it, that's the key, the mindfulness piece, because then it creates the conditions to work, observe, develop calm, whatever we need to do. So that recognition of waking up from the unconscious to the conscious is crucial. But then turning our attention towards the actual experience itself, that actual energy itself, paying attention to the body. Very helpful. Another strength of Vipassana practice, whether we're talking about working with fear or any other uh, uh, form of suffering that we encounter, is that, again, we're looking at sequences of experiences. We're seeing a link. We see the fact that when something unpleasant arises, there's aversion. When something pleasant arises, there's clinging. 
Okay, seeing that relationship. Uh, that takes sustained attention. Um, but so that both the fear itself and the relationship itself are mindfulness objects. That's crucial. So in other words, in my gym experience, if I was being mindful, I would be observing the tension that was building up around my push-up, ex- uh, whatever, contest. And I would be noticing the, the tension in my body. And I would notice like my mind feeling very agitated and restless and you know, getting more and more contracted as I went along. And then I would notice that, yeah, all of a sudden I'm really frightened and I stop. And so there's aversion to that feeling. And so I stop in order to relieve that, that unpleasant experience. But then there's an awareness of what I did, which is push that experience away. And so then there's shame. So there's a sequence. It's not just one experience of being afraid to do push-ups or win. There's a sequence of experiences. And if I was being mindful, I'd be aware of that shame. Okay? All of that experience would be objects of mindfulness. All of it would be something that I would want to pay attention to. Because if I'm aware of my relationship to it, I'm not reinforcing that relationship. I'm not as identified with that shame. I'm seeing it as an object of mindfulness. I'm seeing it as an experience that arises in the mind, expresses itself, and disappears. Crucial, because that takes the power out of the relationship, and that facilitates the healing. It allows us to move more deeply and to experience it more fully without being so threatened, without it having so much power over us. So when we are feeling worried or anxious or fearful, pay attention to that, but keep paying attention to what we're doing, the choices we make, our behavior, our reactions to it. And to look at it with that attitude of making room for the reactions themselves. You know, making room for the shame itself. Difficult, for sure. Making room for the self-judgments that we hold about ourselves in relationship to things that we don't like or things that we think we shouldn't be experiencing. We want to make room for all of that because that's the release, that's the healing, that's the freedom is in making room and being mindful of that sequence because then what happens is that sequence loses its power. And so what happens is that we can actually experience fear and anxiety, but now we're not tormenting ourselves as much. You know, our relationship to it is much more based on awareness rather than our historic relationship to it which is very unskillful and extremely non-compassionate. It's always about being aware and understanding what we're doing. It's not about getting rid of things that we don't like. It's about bringing understanding into all these aspects of our life. And that's why when we say your life is your practice, that's where learning happens. It's in your life as it's unfolding. It doesn't matter what situation or condition you find yourself in. And a lot of the work and fear is coming. It may not be coming so much when you're here. You know, some people, they, we arrive and it feels really safe and supportive and comfortable. And it feels uh, like all the anxieties and worries that we might have had in the past, some folks can kind of drop them. A lot of them carry it into the present. but, but, but you know, when we go out there, we're bound to encounter those energies. I mean, we're bound. From my perspective, it's impossible to practice Vipassana without encountering our fears. 
unless we're fearless. And I don't know how many people I've met that are what I would consider fearless. So we want to include it in practice. That's the direction towards freedom. And again, the attitude is crucial. Let's be real. You know, let's be with ourselves. Let's see if we can develop the ability to acknowledge you know, where we're at and to begin to look at how we're relating to those experiences that we're encountering. And of course, you can, one doesn't force change, but one does change. Transformation is possible, but it comes through healing and it comes through understanding. And it comes through cultivating and uh, understanding uh, that when we encounter pain, one response is compassion to pain. You know, and that's the direction practice can go. Absolutely. Instead of all the self-judgments and the criticisms, all the claiming of me and mine. Just about finished. Done. Let's take a moment. Okay, so thank you, and um, be mindful as you make your way out of the hall, moving into a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.